Hi, good evening, everybody. Today is Tuesday, August 4th. My name is Bill Woodcock. And I'm Jason Booms. And you are listening or watching another exciting edition of Forward Maryland. Jason, uh, how did you make out there in the uh, grand village of Wild Lake in uh, <laughs> Tropical Storm Isais? Uh, the lake is no larger than it was uh, as of yesterday. So I think we're in pretty good shape. Everything seems dry. So I have no complaints. Uh, the uh, rumors, rumors of the Kraken being released from Lake Elkhorn uh, <laughs> were just that, rumors. That, that's, that's, what I, that's what I get for going to one of those clickbait blog sites in this county. <laughs> well, that does happen, and they, and they do tend to report on such nonsense with great regularity, so it's easy to see how it would be uh, easy to follow into that sort of thing. Stay tuned. Yep. So with that in mind, we go outside of our typical confines of Howard County for tonight's podcast enjoyment, and uh, with us this evening is Franca Mueller-Poss. She is a candidate for... Baltimore City Council in the 12th District. Now, those of you who follow this podcast will note that, wait a minute, we already covered the Baltimore City Council elections. Aren't those over until the December or the November general? And does it really even matter because Republicans in Baltimore City are scarcer than hen's teeth? not true. And uh, tonight we're going to talk with Franca and we're going to learn how she is a different type of candidate for city council for Baltimore City. So Franca, welcome to Forward Maryland. Hi, thank you for inviting me on. And tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, a little bit of bio and why you decided to run for city council in the 12th district. You got it. Well, I'm a 10-year veteran teacher in public schools, and I have really been super dedicated to my community for a long time. Uh, I come from an immigrant family, so immigrated here as a, a really little kid and was in Patterson, New Jersey. For those of you who are not familiar with it, it's sort of like a miniature Baltimore. It's a factory, small city, and when I lived there, uh, my father was really concerned. It, a lot of the same issues that take place in Baltimore take place there, and he was worried about the conditions of the schools. He was worried about drug-related violence where we were living. And so my dad made a huge effort to try to find a way for me to get the education that he felt like I deserved, and also for us to have a little bit more peace of mind in our neighborhood. And so we moved just a few miles away, but it was a world of a difference. Uh, it was a, I still went to public school, but it had all of the modern, you know, technology and needs that we really needed to have a quality education. I was able to live in a neighborhood that felt really safe to me and my parents. Uh, but that came with a lot of sacrifice for my family to be able to, to pay the rent and to be there. My father had to work day shifts and night shifts in construction, which can, which can be really dangerous. And 
so I never really saw my father growing up and, you know, we, we survived that time period without having health insurance, uh, with really struggling to keep the lights on, uh, many months that we couldn't pay the rent and risked being evicted. And so, you know, something that, you know, I really experienced by growing up between these two places was why do you need to sacrifice everything, including really building a relationship with your own kids, just to be able to have what I think everybody deserves, which is a, a, same place, a safe place to go home at night and, and a quality school that really, you know, gives your kid the opportunities that you want them to have in life. And so that was something that instilled a, a big sense of injustice for me from an early age. And I have been pretty dedicated to trying to address those issues from the time I was organizing things in high school to today as an adult. <laughs> so uh, I've worked through a lot of different issues, uh, including working in a worker center for undocumented workers, trying to make sure that they got paid fair wages and were able to get uh, treated with the, you know, sort of respect and working conditions that they deserve even, even as undocumented workers. I then went on to be a teacher. Uh, I started first as a second grade teacher, then really quickly went into a charter school. I tried to unionize my charter school because of a lot of infringements on not only our rights, but how our students were being treated. And when I came to Baltimore or came back to Baltimore really, uh, also as a teacher, I uh, became a part of the Baltimore Teachers Union and, and led a fight with our progressive Baltimore caucus, which recently took over the leadership of the teachers executive board of our union, have been elected for three consecutive terms to be the representing uh, building representative for, uh, for our teachers union. And so through that have really had the opportunity to, to fight for workers, but to also really fight for students and families. A lot of our work has been around fighting for fair building conditions, uh, to make sure that our schools are fully funded, uh, to make sure that our students have the access to, to the digital devices and internet that they need. And so uh, one of the reasons that I decided to run, you know, this really wasn't in the, in the books for me. It wasn't something that I was thinking about doing, but we were fighting so tooth and nail all the time, trying to get all of these wins on behalf of students and families and teachers. And we realized we really needed an ally. We really needed an ally at City Hall that was gonna uplift these fights and that was really gonna go for it. And that was something that uh, frankly was really lacking in the representation in the district that I lived in. And so after some really hard conversations with, with students and organizations and uh, community organizers that are, you know, are close friends of mine or allies of mine, uh, we decided that this was this was the way that we needed to have a real champion for for working families in the district. And so the best way to do that was to, to attack it from the inside. And so that's what we're working on doing. And and we're really excited. We've been seeing a lot of successes. And uh, yeah, so we're super fired up. Well, that's awesome. So a couple things uh, for people at home or wherever they're listening. Uh, where is the 12th district of Baltimore? What neighborhoods are we talking about? What communities? Yeah, so I like to call it the heart of the city. It's in the like geographic center of the city and it captures a lot of issues that our city is facing 
uh, around all of it, which is we have development heavily weighted to certain sides of the district. We have loss of population growth in other parts. And so a lot of the disparity that we see across our city are perfectly uh, manifested within this district, but it's in the center of the city. It runs along the east side of 83. Uh, and goes all the way from just below uh, Hopkins campus, runs all the way down to where there's a big concentration of public housing, which is Latrobe Homes, Douglas Homes, Perkis Homes. And so, yeah, we're in, we're in the heart of the town. Yeah. And what's your party affiliation? I'm running as a Green and super excited to be a part of the Green Party. I think I myself have been really disappointed in the Democratic leadership in this district in particular. Uh, the incumbent has taken money from developers, corporations. And so when bills hit his desk and we have the opportunity to make decisions that are either in favor of these corporate developer interests or in favor of students, families, and workers, we've often seen where he lands, right? hasn't supported the fight for 15. That wasn't something that developers wanted. It was something that we workers were really united around. And uh, he had a really special opportunity. He had an opportunity to be the vote that would have made it veto proof from the mayor and he didn't take it. And so while there was a majority of the council that supported the fight for 15, we lost that vote because of because of this one, uh, one uh, city council person not, not making a commitment to workers. And so it got vetoed by the mayor, uh, which is really sad. We could have seen a $15 minimum wage in 2022. Instead, we're gonna have to need to wait till 2025. And anyone will tell you that it may be five years away, it may be on its way, but that's not $15 dollars in the pockets of people right now and that and that makes a really big difference to workers and the uh, oh, I'm, oh i'm sorry go ahead no that's it yeah no, i'm saying the last thing before i uh before i defer to my esteemed co-host uh i i can understand why you don't want to say the incumbent's name but again for the folks playing along at home who is the incumbent council member the incumbent uh, council member is robert stokes uh, before him was Carl Stokes. There's actually no family relation there, uh, but he has benefited from the legacy of Carl Stokes. So a lot of people think he's been in office for a long time when actually he's only served one term. Uh, but in that one term, he's done, he's done a lot of damage to what could have been opportunities for, for working people in the district. I mean, you said a very important point about the legacy and, and having the character of Carl Stokes, who is somebody who I got to know more than just a little bit when I, when I worked in Baltimore City. So I think your characterization is sound. Jason. <laughs> Uh, thanks. Uh, Veronica, I'm just a bit curious. Um, were you considering running in the Democratic primary or were the Greens sort of always been your, your, your natural home? I'm just trying to get a sense, I think, of the chronology of the decision to seek this particular seat at this time. Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely feel at home with the Greens. They have a platform that really stands for a lot of the same priorities that I have. Mm -hmm. So they center policies around economic justice, racial justice, environmental justice. Those are all things that are important to me. They also have a funding structure that mirrors my own 
uh, ethics, which is not taking any corporate money, not taking any corporate PAC money. So I really felt at home uh, with the Green Party. Uh, but I'll also say that there were people that were running in the primary that, that I respected, that have experiences like having been formally incarcerated, have worked really hard to try to create opportunities for returning citizens coming back from prison in Baltimore. So there were also people that I really respected running in the primary and um, I had no interest in hurting their their ability to be able to unseat an incumbent that we really needed, uh, you know, to change because we have a lot of important fights coming up ahead uh, around funding structures for schools, around representation uh, of workers, uh, and lots of things coming down the pipe. And so, uh, I yeah, I didn't want to have any hand in him not <laughs> being unseated. So I was very happy to wait and see what would happen in the primary and throw my hat in the ring as a green if it was needed. Okay. Excellent. Um, I did have one question, and this this goes to education, but it also uh, travels a few other issues as well as far as uh, digital equality is concerned. I just actually picked up a book the other day. I'm, I'm only 10 pages into it, I have to, I'm sorry to say, but it's uh, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century, uh, a very fine book by Eric Olin Wright, who is a sociologist who unfortunately just passed away not that long ago. And, and he wrote uh, in there, uh, just very briefly, uh, his idea for how we should think about equality as a value in a just society, all persons would have broadly equal access to the material and social means necessary to live a flourishing life. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that basic concept and how it might revolve around some of the policy positions that you hold? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important for workers to have a control of the means of production. I think it's really important we're the ones most impacted by what's going on at our job places. So it makes sense for us to have a seat at the table and be able to say, you know, these are the kind of choices we need to make uh, and why, because those are the, that's where you're going to really get the experience and expertise that you need to make smart decisions that maybe uh, administration and executive roles don't understand because they're not on the ground. And so, I definitely want to see policies that really uplift the need for unions and union power. Uh, I also think that the people that are most affected need to be a part of the solutions that are happening in the city. I myself as a teacher have tried to create a lot of space for students to be able to step into their power and to be able to use their voice and their expertise and their experience to be able to push for the solutions that we needed within the education system. So back in 2014, I tried to create fertile ground uh, within my classroom to create a student organization called SOMOS, which is Students Organizing a Multicultural Open Society. And since then, they've been fighting uh, really hard at the school district level for changes to really honor the needs of, of all students and especially our most vulnerable students, which includes students that uh, our ESOL students, students that have IEPs, or as you know, for those of you that are not familiar with the, the acronyms and the lingo, our specialized education plans, mm -hmm. and also uh, for students that experience homelessness and live in concentrated poverty. So trying to fight for those needs. And, and I think it's really important that our city council people play that role, that we have a really important megaphone. And so one of the responsibilities that we have is to lend that 
that podium to the people who understand the problems most. So I think that's something that all of our city council people and all of our, you know, elected officials really need to push to do, which is to open the space for us to hear those voices and for there to be meaningful input, you know, not just these uh, community boards that don't have any teeth and don't really, you know, uh, it's something for people to feel better and sleep at night, but don't actually have the power that they need to make decisions within our policy. So, you know, something that I want to see uh, as a city council person and as an organizer is to see stronger representation of our community members, of our workers uh, at these tables of power where decisions are being made. Makes sense. Uh, I mean, the coalition you described really uh, sort of takes me back uh, to France in 68, although I'm neither French nor am I that old. But just thinking about uh, the students and the workers rallying behind a, a common cause, uh, what are you seeing on the ground in Baltimore as far as your organizational support? I mean, are, are you seeing uh, varying groups of those uh, coming together to help uh, form your coalition? Sure. So I'll talk about a recent fight that I've been involved in that's ongoing where a lot of this work has been coming together and that's around the fight for digital equity. So when the COVID crisis, you know, really popped off in March and we started transitioning to an online learning model, teachers right away knew like this is not going to work. Uh, I opened my digital classroom and I had three students in it. I normally have 35. Right. So as soon as that happened, you know, we all knew we were entering a crisis and it's something that teachers and schools understood, which was that students and many of our students in particular of color don't have access to either the devices or the internet speeds that they need to be able to do their work. But what we were able to do at school is that we were able to have our library and try to create infrastructures within our building to be able to try to mediate those issues. But once you ripped away our school building, right, and everyone's at home, the light uh, was really shown on how deep a chasm there is of connectivity within our city. So. I'll tell you right now, ABLE released an incredible report back in May that highlighted some of these issues. One is that we're one of the most disconnected cities in the United States. We do terribly. We're like number 260 something out of, you know, large cities within, within the U.S. So we're... Uh, terrible as far as it goes just just on an individual city like basis and then when you break stuff down by race it's really incredible right around 70 percent of white households have access to what's called broadband internet which is you know uh, the internet that gets sort of like plugged into your home whether it's cable or optic or whatever you have but when you looked at black households, it was around 50%. And Latino households, you're looking at 46%. So the reality, it, what, what we discovered, you know, what we knew already from what we could see in our classrooms and then what was you know, revealed within the data is that one in every two students of color are really black and Latino students we're not gonna be able to get educated through this model. They just didn't have the tools necessary. And so, 
teachers came together, digital advocates have come together, foundations have come together. We really have been able to get great advocates at City Hall. Uh, that does not include our incumbent, uh, Robert Stokes, but other city council members have been involved in the fight. And students and parent organizations and organizations that organize around, especially black issues in our city. So uh, we have had some major victories under our belt. We won $3 million uh, back in May from City Hall to address this divide. Uh, and we have really put some pressure on the school district to really do their part. Uh, they've uh, done tons of work to try to find any money they can to be able to purchase hotspots and devices. And every device that we had in our schools went out. Anything that wasn't nailed down to the floor has gone out to families uh, to be able to connect their students. And so a lot of the folks that have been a part of this digital fight are also uh, involved in our campaign and working and supporting this campaign. And so it's been an amazing organizing opportunity. I've been so excited to see how unions, students, parents, community organizers have come together around this issue and to really see a lot of that community work uh, also come over into who's supporting uh, our campaign. And so, yeah, it's it's been a really exciting uh, you know, path, which right now has led to this coalition facing a huge fight with Comcast, the company, uh, and Comcast actually getting really upset at our campaign. Uh, they, there was a Maryland Matters article that printed recently, and they really went after that journalist and her editor to make some changes. They were not happy about me pointing out uh, their powerful franchise agreement that you know has resulted in, in them having almost exclusive control of you know, clients with uh, regarding internet in the city, and also how inadequate their internet is that they give to low income families and, and how really predatory their package for low income families is. And, and since that's a fight that we've taken on, uh, which we want to translate into municipal internet, we uh, have found ourselves, uh, yeah, in a in sort of a power struggle with Comcast as well within the campaign. Well, well, in politics, uh, you know, sometimes you've got good enemies. <laughs> and I would say based on the popularity of Comcast through their years of uh, malfeasance at various levels, uh, you know, if, if they oppose you, you're doing something right. Uh, yeah. I, I, do have, I do have one more question, though, before I turn it over to Bill. Uh, I do hear a lot of these uh, similar themes. My, my wife is an educator. She's an assistant principal in Montgomery County Schools. Awesome. Uh, and she's seeing many of, of the same sort of issues uh, with her uh, Latino students, black students, uh, and, and questions having to do with uh, income disparities and access questions. Uh, just to ensure that you know, all the students have the best possible educational experience, even what's considered to be a relatively affluent uh, school, which isn't necessarily the case, but some people think of it that way. Um, but um, looking ahead to this coming, uh, let's just focus on the fall for now. Um, what are your thoughts about the educational experience that the students are likely to have? And are, are there any other ways it could be improved against the backdrop of uh, having it take place virtually and not knowing where this pandemic is going to go? Uh, any solutions you have in mind? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I do want to thank uh, the teachers from Montgomery County. They were also out in the rain last night or yesterday having their own action around not just Comcast, but also Verizon because they have, you know, some presence there in Montgomery County. So, you know, really big shout out to Montgomery County for being in solidarity in this work to, you know, demand what our, uh, our students need. As far as solutions, we need to pressure Comcast to step up. Uh, they have repeatedly tried to say that, you know, they feel that City Hall has to do their part and the schools need to do their part and foundations do need to do their part, that this is like a team effort, which frankly, we've all been doing the work uh, trying to get our kids online. The only partner that's missing is Comcast. Uh, Comcast has been making breaking records. They had a 13 year record in new customers. Uh, and, and I'll dive into that for a second and talk about how this is a solution. So they had a 13 year record, which is around 320,000 new customers in the second quarter. Uh, they did not count the amount of people that are on the free program, but you know, for two months free, uh, internet essentials. There are 600,000 new internet essentials customers, which after two months, also become paying customers. So they're about to be really raking in the cash. They are bringing in billions of dollars in earnings. And so, you know, City Hall has put down money. The school district has put down money. Foundations, it's time that this company does their part. So right now we're working on assembling a hearing uh, through City Council uh, hopefully this hearing will take place at the end of the month to ensure that Comcast comes to the table and brings solutions because they have been benefiting from a 10-year franchise agreement that goes all the way to 2026. Uh, they get all of this revenue from Baltimore uh, citizens buying into their internet programming. Mm -hmm. They need to help out during this crisis. They can't just be using this crisis to just reap benefits and profits and new customers. Mm -hmm. That said, I think we've seen how reluctant this uh, company is to be a partner. And so one of the platforms and solutions is to start working towards municipal internet. And one of the things that we're doing right now is that there are uh, organizations in the district that are, are sorry, in the, the school system and in our city that are working to connect families right now to free high-speed internet that is much faster than Comcast Internet Essentials, that doesn't, uh, you know, charge them uh, rental fees for modems and all this stuff that adds up and up and up when you're talking about internet costs. And so, you know, really we've been trying to, you know, support uh, these programs. Oh, sorry, I think that's my alarm going off. <laughs> My bad. Uh, and so, you know, we don't need to wait until 2026. You know, what we're talking about with the with the campaign is a plan that gets us to having a citywide option for public internet. But there's things we can do right now. So, for example, there is internet that comes from our schools. Uh, we can relay that internet out into our communities, magnify it out using antennas and increase the signal uh, so that it has further and further reach so that our families can be connected right now. Those are things we can do right now. We don't have to wait. And that's something that helps our schools and our students, even if we get to come back to the classroom. So if we come back to the classroom, maybe we're in a hybrid model where we were fully back, we can turn on sort of like the faucet, so to speak, of the internet into our communities by just 
you know, broadcasting this signal outward after school hours are over and helping to get our families connected at night. So like I said, there are innovative ways to deal with this issue. We do need to have the support of our city to be able to, um, you know, pay down some of the infrastructure costs that it would take to be able to build out these systems. But we've been seeing that at the micro level, and this has been already executed at several schools around the city, uh, it's working really well. Families are getting incredible internet. Uh, we just need more institutional support to make it happen. So that's one easy solution we can do right now is investing in this kind of community work that ultimately brings in jobs for folks in Baltimore to set up this internet. Uh, we uh, all the work around this has been using exclusively, you know, Baltimore uh, workers. Uh, it's a way to teach families and give them some knowledge around internet access and, you know, in getting online. There's a lot of great opportunities here. So that's an easy solution. We can do it right now. Great. I mean, that just seems to be one of those practical solutions that anyone seeking the city council should be working hard to achieve. So. Uh, yeah. Good luck with that endeavor. Uh, Bill, I, yeah, I know you had a couple questions. Thank you, sir. Uh, Franco, we, we have been remiss in, in going about a, a half an hour, and it's been wonderful uh, in this uh, podcast without asking the question of your campaign, what is your, what's your campaign's positions uh, with regard to policing, uh, with regard to racial inequity, uh, with regard to creating a more just uh, justice system uh, in Baltimore City, defunding, repurposing, police funding. Uh, where, where are you on that? Absolutely. So obviously the legacy of redlining and many other systemic uh, racial inequities in the city have meant that a lot of these problems that we've already talked about like completely mirror if you look at a redlining map and you look at who's connected online and you look at who has access to healthy food uh, who has you know great transportation access all of those things uh, they really mirror the redlining maps of the 1930s and so something that we really need to do is to take this inflated police budget that we have and we need to reimagine it i really think completely i think it it absolutely needs to be transformed and we need to be approaching you know one of the top issues for folks is crime in the city and so i think we need to kind of reframe that question which is what are the root causes of crime how are they associated with these systemic racial issues that our city has been embracing for a long time and what can we do with that budget to try to address these inequities which we ultimately know will also impact our our crime rate and so one of the things that I'm really fighting for is to uh, take this budget and to have the a lot of this budget go towards root cause issues. So, for example, our students, they need to have access to to jobs and opportunities. We need to expand youth work so students have financial opportunities that they need to be able to, we know a lot of our students have a lot of financial responsibilities to be able to address those financial responsibilities and not feel the need to get involved in lifestyles that can be really harmful to them and their families and their neighborhoods. Uh, we need to make sure that we have a $15 minimum wage as soon as possible so that these 
these jobs that people do earn uh, go in far enough to be able to address some of the other issues that we face, which is folks being able to purchase quality food, folks being able to stay in their homes. Uh, I think we need to be turning this uh, some of our budget also over to making sure we have the medical, sorry, mental health care that a lot of folks need. A lot of our police expend time dealing with mental health crises that they aren't equipped to address. So we need to make sure that we have people in place that can do that work. Uh, same goes with trying to address our, our drug issues within the city, making sure that we're not addressing them with policing, but that we're addressing them with the care and, you know, detox programs that people need to then be able to have lives and thrive. So that's, that's really my position, which is that uh, I think we've been going around how do we deal with the crime in our city the, the wrong way. We're trying to address the symptom and not the cause. And so that's, that's a, a big part of our campaign and it's one of the major priorities that, that I have as a candidate. And, and I guess, you know, a number of your answers to both of our questions um, are, you know, have, have I've seen in my mind applicable to the world of, of economic development. Mm -hmm. And what I'm very concerned about in this coming administration, I mean, and what's going to be the Scott administration, um, is a continued lack of attention, lack of care to the needs of Baltimore City from the governor's office. You know, forget everything that Hogan crows about in his book, putting a big reelection sign i mean screwing i mean you mentioned redlining of course another vernacular but his killing the red line has set baltimore city back 10 years Absolutely. what what is the vision that your campaign has for making baltimore more self-sufficient you know you mentioned very you know very basic uh, infrastructure needs that baltimore is behind on i mean you know another thing I used to work in the health department, and I know about the food deserts. Uh, Baltimore has a bad recycling rate, you know, and all in all, I mean, it's it's just making the city less livable, and it's a great place to live. Yeah. How, how, how are you planning to address that from your seat on the city council? Well, I think there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is that we need to think about how we can infuse more money into our city's budget. And COVID is going to put a lot of pressure to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So I think there are some, you know, tax structures that uh, folks have really benefited from uh, that need to be reconsidered and to make sure that we have the money going into our city that we need, right? And, and one example of that, of course, is uh, some people may be familiar with Sagamore and the Sagamore Pendry, uh, and I'll just list them as an example. So uh, that is a $42 million property, and they pay seven times less in property taxes than your average row house that's in Sandtown, Winchester, which is around $60,000, right? So that's leaving a ton of money on the table when we know Sagamore wants to open in Baltimore because that's where their customer base is going to be. That's where they're going to really have reap a lot of benefits because they're gonna take advantage of the folks that live and work there. And so 
we really need to make sure that you know these uh, developers and corporations and even some of these nonprofits that have a lot of power in our city are paying their fair share uh, as far as what's happening at the state house and in the governor's mansion i think that there's a lot of room for organizing so i'm an organizer i've been organizing since you know in baltimore since 2006 i started with casa de maryland uh, i thank them for being uh, the first uh the first organization that gave me a job that wasn't uh cleaning stuff or waiting tables and uh and i and i really i really thank casa and they and they showed me a lot around organizing structures and I think that's something that's missing in some of our our city council representation, which is I think they, you know, do a lot of mobilizing during the election and then they get into office and sort of leave those skills behind when to get things passed, you need a lot of momentum and you need, you know, sometimes crises uh, to really make things happen and A good way to create the crisis that creates the sort of political pressure to make something happen is by having a lot of popular support, uh, popular action taking place. So one of the things that I want to see is a really activated 12th district that is willing to go down to Annapolis when something is happening, that's willing to go to the governor's mansion and really make their voices heard. And I think, you know, no matter what, uh, while Hogan has, you know, been enjoying his, his, you know, his term, he still has to, you know, keep a certain amount of people happy and needs to make sure that he has his, uh, can count on certain votes, which, you know, a lot of them don't come from Baltimore. Uh, but we do also have a state house that is majority blue, and we need to put pressure on that state house to get stuff done on those uh, delegates and state senators. So I really think there's a lot of room for growth there to make sure that we don't have huge bills coming through Annapolis and we don't have one, the Baltimore delegation present, or we don't have, you know, actual Baltimore citizens really fired up. And I, and I think one of the, the places that I feel really strong is I know how to bring people together, get people out to an action that that's been something I've been doing for over a decade. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to enter the office and to keep organizing and to keep people engaged. And that's a lot of how our, our campaign structure has been working with that in mind. And, and what, and thank you for that great answer. Uh, what, what of your major campaign planks have, have we not touched on so far this evening? Because I, I think we, we've touched on a lot, but what, what else is there that you would like to mention? Sure. Well, one of the big things is obviously COVID. I think there, there's no way we can be running without thinking about what are we going to do about this situation. And so one of the things that is linked a little bit with the, the issue of digital inequity is that there are certain supports that have become available during this crisis. What has not been clear is how people hear about those supports. So there have been there have been grants, grants for small businesses, grants for people, grants to help pay off rent. Um, 
lots of, of things coming through to try to help people. Not enough, but there have been things that have been coming out to help people. So I think one of the, the really important pieces that I'm trying to do through this campaign is we're trying to set up a structure where one, as we're running, uh, and this will happen a little later into the campaign once we have a little bit more of a foothold, is using our interaction with constituents to let them know around some of the things that are available now to deal with the crises that are really, you know, running out of control uh, due to COVID. And that's something that I want to continue to do from when I'm in office is to make sure that part of our job is to make sure we're routinely calling out, routinely contacting through texting infrastructure and saying, hey, there's this opportunity, you can apply for it, go here. Hey, the school district is offering devices on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 to two, make sure you're there. You know, making sure that residents really know about what's available and that it's not just something that people people who are more LinkedIn, more technolo technologically savvy, get to hear about and take advantage of. Uh, you know, these are, some of these programs are lifelines and we really need to make sure that people are familiar with it. So I really want to focus on kicking up how our district in particular, but really the city as a whole, make sure that they're communicating uh, the programs that they're putting out there. Great. Great. Jason? Actually, that response sort of lends itself very well to what I was going to bring up, which is we are on the precipice of a housing slash homelessness crisis in this country uh, as, as people start to move forward uh, on evictions. Uh, I was wondering, uh, both from a short-term immediate perspective, uh, your ideas on some solutions there, as well as a longer-term vision for uh, how to improve opportunities for housing in the city. Yeah, I mean, immediately... Uh, recently, just uh, well, I think it was last week or the week before last, uh, I was with organizations at the governor's house uh, demanding that we put an end to uh, evictions and foreclosures that, or that we don't open up to them because as we know, that just changed. Now families can start to be evicted and foreclosed on. So I think immediately that needs to stop. And that's something that we really do need to pressure our state partners to make happen. Luckily, there have been programs coming out of the city to pay back to rent, uh, which has been really beneficial to many people across the city. We need to expand and put more money into that program. We also need to put a lot of pressure onto the city to make sure that they're also helping to keep uh, folks housed. We know that an eviction crisis today, or so yeah, is gonna be a homelessness crisis tomorrow and a, another wave of COVID the day after that, right? So we cannot let people be pushed out of their homes, uh, put into a vulnerable position, and then ultimately create a really deep health crisis in our state that we cannot handle either financially, right? I think there's been a really uh, messed up point of view of how to handle these problems, which is that we want to keep profits rolling now, but by not making the right decisions of fully shutting down as a state, fully making sure people can stay home, we're prolonging how long this crisis is going to take place. And that ultimately is going to drain our economy longer and longer and longer. And so while we're seeing other places that are maybe going to have the opportunity to begin to open up, uh, we're going to continue to lose that chance if we don't uh, make the right decisions now. 
Uh, on the long term, outside of COVID, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do around housing to make sure that we're building up wealth in our communities. So for example, we need to ease some of the restrictions on how you can use Section 8 vouchers to be mortgage vouchers. So I think there's a great way to use Section 8 to be essentially like a rent to own, uh, you know, kind of infrastructure. And so the state puts some extra requirements there that we need to reduce. The city puts even more that we really need to reduce so that we can really try to build up wealth. And one of the fastest ways that we can build up wealth in you know, middle class and working communities is you know, frankly by owning property. And so that, that's a really big, you know, big piece that we need to work on. And again, everything seems to go back to COVID-19, I suppose, but uh, just sort of looking ahead back uh, to people exercising their franchise and uh, election day uh, itself is roughly 90 days away. Um, what are you telling folks who ask, what should I do? Should I try to vote at the polls, even though that might be a health hazard? Should I apply for the absentee ballot? What, what do you recommend that people do at this stage? A hundred percent people should be requesting their absentee ballot and have their absentee ballot mailed to them. We know a lot of people don't have printers, so you know don't yeah, don't accidentally request the print option. Make sure you're having it sent to you. And I do not recommend that people go out to the polls. I really think if if you're able, please re request the absentee ballot. I don't want to see anyone put themselves in harm's way for this election. But what really needs to happen is that the governor needs to do what we did with our primary, which was great for voter enfranchisement and have a mail-in mail -in election. Uh, I think that's really important if we really want to hear the voice of Marylanders. And so that's definitely what I'm advocating for. But if, you know, if that does not budge, then I think the, the real recourse that we have is to request absentee ballots. And that's the best way to keep people safe. Makes sense. Bill, I know you have a question. Yes, and speaking of the ballot, are you on the ballot as a Green Party candidate? Yes, well, I'll say that with like, yes, with a 99.99999% certainty. Uh, mm -hmm. Yesterday, we submitted our ballot uh, petition, and we had already confirmed uh, 4,500 of the ballots. Uh, we needed 5,000. So we only had needed 500 more, and we submitted around 2,000 extra. So we are, we're su we are super conservative. We went way over to make sure there would be absolutely no way that anyone could remove enough uh, of these petitions or discount them and try to keep us off the ballot. So we, uh, there is an official deadline of August 21st. We hope to hear by the end of this week about our the ballot count, but we are all but certainly on going to be on the ballot in November with the Green Party. Okay. And, and before I, I recognize Jason for his final question, which has befuddled and bamboozled many a guest. <laughs> it's a Roger Mudd Ted Kennedy moment all over again. <laughs> oh, it's it, it, David Suskind is looking down <laughs> from above and smiling. Um, how can people learn more about your campaign? Where, where do they go? What do they do? 
Yes. Well, people can go to Franca, F-R-A-N-C-A, forthepeople.com. So again, Franca, forthepeople.com. And you can sign up and volunteer. You don't need to live in Baltimore. You don't even need to live in Maryland to volunteer. Anyone can do it because of, thank you, COVID. And also to please donate. We're really coming up against some very entrenched corporate and developer interests. We have certainly uh, sort of shaken the bee's nest a little bit around uh, around Comcast. So we, and we know that the incumbent Robert Stokes has also received money from the FOP or the police union. And so we are not taking any corporate money, developer money or police union money. So we really need the support of individuals that feel fired up about the policies that we're fighting for. So whether you're in Baltimore, Maryland or anywhere else, this is a really important fight. When we went in Baltimore, we helped to create this precedence to really help to also push progressive policies across Maryland. And we can set an example that other cities fall, uh, fall with. So for example, We've been pushing for this digital divide. Our hard work, uh, we began networking with council people in Philadelphia and in Detroit. And now Detroit has published more or less the same exact resolution as Baltimore's. Philly is getting ready to do the same. So when, when Baltimore wins, there really is a way for everyone to win. So please get involved. Please volunteer. Please donate at francaforthepeople.com. We really need your support. Jason, she seems like a tough bird. I think she can take it. Okay. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, well, let me ask us. Obviously, campaigning 2020 style is very different uh, than perhaps any of us had anticipated. Uh, but uh, say you you run into a voter and and they 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 really want to know all about you, and they ask you the question, Franca, what's your deal? What do you tell them? I tell them I'm a fighter. I think we haven't had a fighter in City Hall uh, with this last incumbent. He's been in there for four years. And what has he done for us? He hasn't fought for the students, parents, the families, the workers in our district. I've been fighting for, uh, I've been fighting for us for a long time. And if we wanna get stuff done, and if we wanna start to win, the win the policies that we need to try to get to enjoy Baltimore uh, the way we really deserve to be able to have and live the lives of dignity that we deserve as Baltimoreans. Uh, I think they should vote for me, vote to have a fighter in City Hall because I've been fighting for a long time. I'm not ready to let up. And the people that are supporting our campaign, they've all been fighting alongside me. So we know what it takes to win. Uh, we know what it takes to make the pressure necessary uh, to get it done. So that's what I would tell them. Well, Franca, Baltimore has a long boxing tradition back from the light heavyweight champion Joe Gans from the 19th century on. Um, and uh, at this point in its history, I think at, at I believe, what, 291 years of age, um, recently celebrated, Baltimore can use all the fighters it can get. So we wish you well on your campaign, and uh, we thank you for being a terrific guest and I uh, hope you'll come back at some future time. Thank you, Bill and Jason. I really look forward to being back and I hope it's soon. Our, our pleasure. Jason, any, anything in closing? Uh, nope, just uh, always glad to see a people-powered campaign in action. So, uh, so again, thanks for, thanks for joining us.
Likewise, likewise, Franca. And uh, thank you as always, Jason. Uh, my name is Bill Woodcock. Uh, we may be with you later on this week. Still guest TBD. Uh, if you're Mark, if you're the guest we've been trying, I've been trying to reach, and you're watching this, uh, please, please email me back. But anyway, uh, for Jason Booms, my name is Bill Woodcock, and you have been watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland. Have a great night, everybody. Take care. <laughs>